I just want to say something, being in the same room with Tim now. When he said the word paranoid, he totally looked at me. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to point that out. So hey everybody, welcome to episode 189 of the More Than Just Code podcast. We are somewhat live from RW DevCon, and I have in the room with me Tammy Coron from West Tennessee. Hey now. And we also have on the line, we have Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin down there in San Jose, California. Hello. All right. Can't really say I'm down there this time, Tim, because you're uh, kind of on the same latitude right now. I, I'm equal with you? Oh, you're, oh really? Yeah. Oh, what do you know? Equal. Latitude, it's math, Latitude. don't worry. Okay, that's what I thought we were talking about, was math, and I had to tune out. Yeah, yeah, no, no, we're talking about, uh, yeah, I didn't realize we were, yeah, I guess, I guess you're Northern California and Washington are on the same latitude line? Roughly. Roughly, yeah, oh, okay, cool. So Jaime's a northerner then. That's true. Right. Closest to the, the northern border with Canada, and the United States tilts a little bit, so it kind of pushes us up more. Sure, sure. All right. Okay. Well, so we have a quick uh, um, sort of ask MTJC, MTJC follow-up. We were getting fact-checked on our uh, members of um, Melissa Gilbert's family. Uh, Sarah Gilbert's brother was also on Little House in the Prairie with her. And uh, I had mentioned in the podcast that he was adopted, according to Wikipedia. And uh, um, our friend Joe Cabrera uh, thought I had said that he was adopted on the on the TV show. But apparently, and I wouldn't know this, but apparently he played Willie Olson, son of the storekeeper and brother to Nellie Olson on um, Little House in the Prairie. I have no idea who those people are. How do you not know who they are? I've never watched the show. My kids watch that show. Good John Boy. How do you not know that That's stuff? not John that's Boy. The that's, that's the Walton. Oh, wait. What are Tammy. we talking about? <laughs> Little House in the Prairie. Oh, aren't they the same? We're talking about the Michael Landon one, right? So Wait. Mm. The Waltons and Little House in the Prairie, they're not the same? No. no they're, they're, they're Americans, but oh, Americans. Americans. So My entire childhood is a lie. So to me, and Mark might relate to this, but Michael Landon was a Little Joe on Bonanza. Yes. Uh, yes, that was a little before my time, though, but yes. Was it? Oh, see, that was I was probably about six or seven, maybe eight, when Bonanza was still on the air, because it starred, you know, Canadian Lauren Green, so I kind of watched that. Wait a second, I thought John Boy was the Waltons. He is the Walton. I'm so confused. He's also in uh, The Americans, which you have to watch. You know the one I was telling you about that show I was binging about the spies? Oh. The Russian spies? Okay. Right? All right. I'll put it on the list right after Firefly. Yeah, Tammy's list is getting really long. Anyway, so yeah, so uh, Joe, uh, sorry, the brother was actually adopted in real life, according to Wikipedia. Now, don't quote me on that, but there you go. So I was kind of hoping that Jaime would jump in there and save us on the, the Little House on the Prairie facts and figures. This is no? just a little bit outside of my time, other than vague awareness of Little House on the Prairie and Michael Landon, because it probably was on reruns on some channel. Um, I have no clue what the Waltons is. I have to look that one up. All right. Okay. Okay, cool. So on the follow-up side, we have, uh, last week I talked about Charles Proxy on iOS, which I think is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, but I found a, a couple of tweets, some discussions about it. Lucas Cole 
Elmer had tweeted out that um, now that he's running the Charles Proxy for iOS app on his uh, phone, he's creeped out by how much uh, backgrounding is going on in apps um, that he wasn't aware of. Um, apps sending you know information about his location and things like that all along. And there was a big long thread I've got posted here in the show notes of uh, things like, for instance, he talked about the stargazing app, which apparently has been, which he hasn't used in years, but has been sending uh, his location information to their servers for that many, many years. So it's kind of interesting that this Charles Proxy um, software on iOS devices is, is opening people's eyes to what's really going on behind the scenes. I mean, is it better to know or not know? Like, are we we happier or not? I guess we're more informed now. And the Stargazer app, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me that it would use your location. I mean, presumably it wants to show you where the stars are in relation to you. Yeah, I suppose it's also from the, the people who tend to, you know, be a little bit more paranoid about what's going on or not going on in the devices too, right? No, I just want to say something. Being in the same room with Tim now, when he said the word paranoid, he totally looked at me. <laughs> 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 just want to point that out. Are the two of you wearing uh, tinfoil hats at the moment? Like, that would be a, a great photo. <laughs> I didn't think she could hear me through that industrial strength tinfoil she wears. Uh, <laughs> all right. Okay. So, um, yeah. And I, I think we talked about the Apple Business Manager platform. Um, uh, another tweet I saw, actually an article which follows up on what I was saying last week um, in 9to5Mac. Uh, there's a picture, I think there was, yeah, there's a, on the Apple's website. It's not really a tease, but it does say late spring and a sort of a lozenge, an orange lozenge there to indicate that they're going to introduce this product um, a little bit later. So uh, that's kind of interesting. And, you know, so we'll put that in the show notes for people driving at home to read that. Moving on. Um, yeah, I just posted another thing here about uh, Chris Latner has officially announced, I guess, semi-officially announced that TensorFlow, uh, sorry, there's a Swift support for TensorFlow flow is now available uh, in an open source project. I guess we were kind of speculating as to what he would do when he went over to to Google. And it makes sense that, that uh, he would swiftify things, uh, you would think, right? Um, with uh, And obviously with TensorFlow. I don't have too much to say about it, but I think it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, hopefully he'll uh, start swiftifying other stuff. Uh, one thing I'd love to see would be Google App Engine or Google Cloud mm. Services, I guess they call it now. Yeah, Have, have Swift support or maybe uh, Swift support for Android. Oh, True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The issue with Swift with Android is, isn't it th- related to the UI components? Like I said, we'd still use XML to do their UI. Well, they'd use the Android app components. Just it could be programmable in Swift in theory. Oh, I see what you mean. Not doing iOS yeah. apps on Android. <laughs> doing Android apps on. Android. No, no, no. I know. I, I know. I didn't mean. I meant. I think. That I thought that was one of the limitations of having Swift running on Android would be how how do you deal with the inter- interface? But I guess that would be what they would be. But you know, uh, Google owns all those libraries, so they for sure. Could, yeah. could do it. They could Swiftify them. Yeah. yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, I think I think Swift on Android sort of suffers from the same problem that Swift on anything other than iOS and macOS suffers from. Um, in the fact that so much of what we sort of think of as like, oh, that's just part of something I use in Swift. It's like, well, yeah, because you're using Cocoa or Cocoa Touch, you know, the frameworks piece. And when you move to something like Linux, it's like, oh, uh, this whole foundation thing needs to get ported over as well because there's a whole bunch that's just based on history. It's a uh, it's Cocoa. Or 
or Cocoa Touch under the covers for a lot of things. And there's been like a ton of community work to do that. So if you, oh, great, like you can compile Swift to run, you know, on Android. It's like, well, okay, but it also means now you have to bridge the gap for the existing Java-based um, you know, Android framework, which mm-hmm. I don't think is insurmountable. I mean, there are people who are yeah. trying to do it with like Rust and Go and all sorts of other like far less applicable languages. And with Swift and Kotlin being similar enough, it doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Yeah. yeah I didn't say it'd be easy, but I think it would be very cool. And if you look at how much interest there's always been in having write it once and use it on multiple platforms uh, within various forms, uh, I think it would be pretty popular if we could use the same, at least use the same language. Granted, the, the, the libraries would be different, but at least using the same language would go a long way to making people be much more versatile at switching back and forth between writing the two types of apps. Right, right. And did any of you see the uh, YouTube video for this uh, TensorFlow Dev Summit 2018 where they talked about Swift for TensorFlow? No. No. Okay, so that? that's in the bottom bottom of the document for, for us. Oh, okay. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. But it, it sort of takes a, a peanut butter and jelly approach where you know so much of what's useful... Wait, can we stop for a second and, sure. and explain what the peanut butter and jelly approach is? Is that like party in the front, party at the back? Or I'm not sure. I've never heard that 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 <laughs> phrase before. So. Well, well, they go together like jam butter and jelly, right? right? Like in a sandwich or, or coffee and donuts, salt no, and pepper. You, no, I think you need to be like, you got your chocolate and my peanut butter. No, you got your peanut butter and oh, my Reese's? chocolate. Yeah. Reese's Pieces or whatever. Sorry, yeah. I, I just, I had never heard that term before, so I wasn't sure what you meant. That is, that is quite interesting. As I, I assumed it might be... You know, specific to the United States, I didn't think it would be like a regional thing. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I was like, oh, if anybody's gonna if anybody's gonna balk on this, it might be Tim. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do, do they have something similar in uh, in Tennessee? No, no. You just sort of chocolate like, and your peanut butter. That's the only analogy. That's you can think the only of. yeah. Like I've never heard like your peanut butter and jelly thing. I've never heard that like a mashup. Yeah, mm. two different things that go well together, right? That are yeah, but not peanut butter. It's chocolate and peanut butter, but not peanut butter and jelly. Is that true that in Tennessee you don't eat? Nobody eats peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's all we eat. Actually, we, what we know <laughs> okay. we, we eat fried bologna. That's what we eat. Fried bologna. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fried bologna is our thing. They do very that good. up in Newfoundland too. It's very good. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Tammy's on the show this this week, so we're going to talk about nothing. But <laughs> <laughs> the wheels have come off <laughs> ten minutes into the show. <laughs> Welcome to Roundabout Creative. <laughs> totally off the rails. <laughs> So now that we've got the uh, the analogy there, uh, coming back to it. So what was announced related to Swift for TensorFlow is sort of combining the, the two languages for uh, Swift and Python, which Python is very popular in the machine learning data science community. There are a bazillion different analysis packages and mathematics packages, all sorts of things that people use for that stats sort of stuff that would take, you know, a million years to uh, to recreate in Swift. So why should you have to, right? You know, it's it's better to use Python for what Python is really good for, bring in NumPy and all these other things. But Swift has a really nice aspect too. And this is what they talked about in the video. Like, you know, it kind of sucks if you run your um, your training, you know, trying to train a model and like three hours into it, you realize that there was a type mismatch somewhere. Well, Swift is really good at that, right? It's really good at having a, you know, strongly typed sort of things. You can make sure like, oh, I wasn't trying to pass in an integer into something that it was expecting a string, for example. And so they're adding more language uh, related support 
or into Swift and into uh, like the TensorFlow package or module, I guess, for Swift, um, as well as the interoperability that folks might be more familiar with if you've seen the Swift um, Swift evolution forums related to that. So it's it's all kind of like tying together in uh, as coming back to the analogy of like like peanut butter and jelly, pretty good independently, but much better together. I think what you mean to say is peanut butter and chocolate. Those go to, well together too. Uh, today's episode brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Oh, and speaking of cross-platform and run anywhere, um, they also announced that there was going to be TensorFlow.js, so you'd be able to run TensorFlow through JavaScript and, and even in the browser. And we'll have that link in the show notes as well. Cool. All right. Okay, so Jaime brought some stuff for us uh, from Apple regarding the releases that we got last week. Yeah, it was a very busy time in terms of releases of stuff coming out. So by this point in time, you hopefully have updated to iOS 11.3. It has the uh, battery management feature that we've been all wondering about. And uh, I looked into my phone, and my iPhone 10 is at 99% capacity of what it was when it was fresh and new back in October. Um, so where do you see that, Jaime? That is under battery management, I think. Battery management. Real-time follow-up. So go to the set. Settings app, go to yeah. battery, and you see a battery health beta. Thing. Oh, right, yeah. Okay. So if you tap on you that, on it'll that. show you maximum capacity and peak performance capability. Or uh, mine says peak performance capability. Your battery is currently supporting normal peak performance. And I've seen people online who say, oh, mine says not so good things. But I think that's because they have older phones where the battery right, is, right. is starting to, to give up the ghost. So that's live and available for users as well as uh, Animoji. There are a few Animoji that have uh, come out. The Lion bear, dragon, and skull. Um, I think something kind of more interesting for developers is the fact that uh, ARKit 1.5, I think the number they're giving it, uh, has mm-hmm. come out. So that's available yep. to have the vertical surface. Like we've, it's been you know very good at horizontal surfaces, you know floors, that sort of thing. But now you can like put stuff on walls and other sorts of things. So that's really cool. It's oh, really cool, nice yeah. to see that's not a, a iOS 12 or WWDC sort of thing. Like we're getting this fresh and new. Here it is in, in April. And then I think the other sort of timely thing, if you've upgraded to 11.3, uh, as I have, is a really strong push towards uh, privacy, which is pretty timely with the Facebook Cambridge Analytica uh, controversy and the uh, GDPR stuff coming out of Europe. That would be the General Data Protection Regulation, I think. I think that's what that stands for. A whole bunch of privacy-related rules and stuff. And iOS 11.3 really pushes that out in, in front of your face, like from the get-go. It's like, hey, by the way, we're doing such and such to protect your privacy. Click here to read, you know, read more about it. And I've seen that in other areas like can't remember if it was apple music or the app store app one of the two just kind of surprised me one of these interstitials so definitely a big yeah they've got that new them. icon thing and it says in the interstitial that that's going to appear whenever there's a privacy issue that they want to um, you know the users to be aware of right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah like initially when you like i said when it for, when you first install it there's, a, there's one that pops up and then uh, i haven't seen it any second time um yeah it's interesting, you know, today, just on a side note, um, I was looking at a, a video in Twitter, and uh, I thought it was uh, interesting that it said, in order to watch this video, you have to agree to Twitter's terms. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, I see that a lot when it's embedded, like embedded videos. Really, yeah. I was just, just going to joke tweet and say, you know, by reading this tweet, you agree to my terms and conditions. 
<laughs> people have tried doing that, you know, with uh, like mailing a check in for like a bill or something. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know if it holds up or not, but. Right, right. Oh, I see. Okay, right, right. I follow you. So, okay, cool. Is that uh, pretty much all we have as far as new features listed here in this article? That's as far as I'm aware. I haven't really poked around. Seems pretty stable as far as the release goes. Uh, notably, yeah. it does not include the iCloud um, messages sync, nor does it include AirPlay 2, but hang on to your hat. Um, that will be coming up later in the show. <laughs> to your head, all right. Of course, as as usual with any new version of Xcode, there's a whole new set of crashes and, and bugs. Uh, I've already seen two weirdnesses. Actually, yeah, two with Xcode, one with iTunes Connect, which may or may not be related. The weirdnesses I've seen are just, well, new random crashes in different places where it never used it before. Uh, and for some reason, some Swift syntax uh, uh, for long expressions. So you've probably seen this back in the early days of Swift. If you had too long of an expression, Expression, you know, X plus Y plus Z divided by four times three or, you know, with variable names in there, it would force you to break it up because it wasn't able to parse it all in one go. Uh, this was something that was around in the early days of Swift. Well, that actually came back for me in one case for something that worked fine in Swift 4 uh, and in, or rather, X, Xcode 9.2 point uh, whatever the last version was. Uh, but now with the new version of Xcode and Swift 4.1, it wasn't able to parse that uh, statement that it could before. So easy fix. I just have to break it up a couple of smaller statements and merge them together. But but it was uh, a little annoying that I actually had to do that. Yeah, I could see that being annoying. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also had an issue with iTunes Connect just today, which may or may not be related to this. Uh, probably not, but you never know. Uh, I was not able to, in test flight, uh, I was able to send a new build, brand new build to internal iTunes Connect users, but not able to submit uh, for, for beta app approval to external users. I was just getting a modal dialog box that popped up saying there was an error, try again later. And when I looked at the web console, it was an a HTTP 400 error of some sort when it tried to uh, submit. So, And that, that actually lasted pretty much all day. Uh, and I, I actually even went on Twitter and to see if, any, if other people had seen it. And uh, sure enough, other people had seen it. So I had to get on the phone to Apple support. And right after I spoke to them uh, to dev support, it uh, suddenly started working. So if you see that call Apple dev support, cause they can, they can fix it apparently. Yeah. It must be a weird error. Like you can't, it's an API error or something like that. Yeah. 400, I think is a, uh, authentication error, I believe. Yeah. One of those, you know, 404 is the standard. Can't find the URL, but 400, I right, yeah, think is yeah. authentication. I have to look that up. Yeah. There's a table somewhere. I've seen it. Maybe we'll link it in the show notes if I can find it. Um, a side note here, Mark. Um, we were talking about IB Designable at uh, at the office the other day. Yeah. Um, do you use a lot of IB Designable in your storyboards? Because they were, they were saying that really slows down the compiling time. Yeah, I don't use it very often because uh, it does slow it down in my experience, and it, it just seems kind of flaky. It doesn't always work the way you expect it to work. Uh, so I just I almost never use it these days. Right. Okay. Right. So Jaime, you got? Do you want to go through the Xcode nine point three release notes that you've got? Listed here? Only Any briefly. Highlights? So be, beyond the, like, you should know kind of bugs like, like Mark described, uh, we also ran into one related to Swift 4.1 where there's a bug in Swift itself related to, and I'm reaching here because I wasn't involved. Um, it was having trouble with translating some sort of generic thing. Like it was convinced that something was incorrect. And if you change, if you change the, the format of the method name slightly, it somehow is able to figure out what you intend. Um, so your mileage may vary related to that. Hopefully they'll, they'll pass 
catch that pretty soon. Um, on a more positive side, uh, the new energy organizer apparently shows logs generated when your app or app extension exceeds a quote unquote reasonable CPU threshold in the foreground and background. That's kind of neat. I want to try running that on the app and see what it does. Um, things you should know, um, they're pushing really hard on Mac OS to make that a 64-bit uh, only sort of environment. And so there's a new 64-bit testing mode for Mac OS to test for 64-bit compatibility. And they have, uh, in terms of deprecations and removals, removed the 32-bit option from the architecture build settings UI. And if you're building for 32-bit architecture on Mac OS, now it gives you a warning. So you might want to jump on that if you're still in that area. Oh, I didn't realize that uh, Mac OS was still doing 32-bit stuff, but that makes sense, right? Because otherwise a lot of apps would just disappear off the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. Cool. Anything else? Not for that. The release notes will be in the show notes for those of you driving at home and who want to really look at the nitty-gritty. Cool. All right. So next thing item you have here, Jaime, is it's the Jaime Lopez show, um, <laughs> is um, allowing your users to manage data in iCloud? Yeah. Oh, oh, there you go. They, they spelled out what GDPR stands for. It is, in fact, General Data Protection Regulation. It's coming out of the European Union. Uh, I got this via an email to my developer account saying, oh, by the way, uh, in order to help developers comply with that, Apple is providing tools to help you fulfill data requests made by your users in the in the EU or around the world. So getting copy of the data associated with that user, uh, temporarily deactivate or restrict access, so on and so forth. And they provided sort of helpful um, documents and tooling here for how you can provide user access to CloudKit data or how you, uh, you can have options for responding to requests to delete data. So I want to read up on that if you feel you are even slightly going to be impacted by this. And if you have things in multiple app stores, particularly anywhere in the European Union, uh, you probably will. And I'm guessing UK still counts until Brexit officially occurs. So presumably you would be caught in that situation too. So go read up on it. Cool. So so is this only related to CloudKit or is this any kind of um, access where you might be storing users' data that you're, you're required to be able to give them access to it? Well, I think in general, the EU's regulation doesn't really care what the mechanism is. They're just saying, be verily, um, and I don't know the regulation that well, but presumably for people uh, who are citizens of the EU or maybe even for people who are not citizens, but happen to be in the EU while they're transacting or, or interacting with your, your software, uh, they would fall under that regulation. And I think Apple is giving us these specific tools because this is the one part they control, right? Like you, they have uh, CloudKit that they provide as an offering to developers. And so they're making it easier for at least CloudKit, you know, enabled data to, to be handled. If you're using something else like uh, Firebase or Realm or all these other ones, like you will have to go figure out with those companies or, or your own service as to how you'll comply. I think this is just Apple covering its base for the little piece of the world that it controls. Right. You know, it's sort of on a side note again, we're, we're talking about Facebook in the last couple of weeks, I guess. Um, and I think, I don't know if you saw on, on my tweets uh, this week, but um, I was curious. I was listening to uh, the radio again. It was I think I was heard it on Spark CBC Radio on their podcast that you can request from Facebook um, to have a data a, like a dump of all the data that you've posted to Facebook in your entire lifetime using Facebook. And I've been using it since. 2009 or somewhere around there. No, is that right? No, any for a long time I've been using it. Yeah, but no, I think earlier than that actually. Um, but anyway, um, so I thought, well, let me go find out how to do that. And, and it, it was a really in a convoluted place. Like it took me a while to figure out where to go. I had to, it, it wasn't quite obvious within your actual app. You had to actually, there's a site you go to, or like a Facebook page, you know URL that you go to to get it. And because one thing I was curious about was you know with this whole um, Cambridge uh, Analytica you know f you know dump of your 
friends' data, right, or access to your friends. I don't think I would ever knowingly have allowed Facebook to to use allow my contacts. You know, back in the day, they contacts. Uh, back in the day, they had um, the birthday data, and you know, I kind of objected to that because they flooded my my um, account with. Uh, but uh, back uh, in the day, you didn't have to give permission, right? So, oh yeah, yeah. So, so I was just curious about that, and so I wanted to go back, and and so I I, I did the dump of it, and it turned out that in fact, you know, very many of my contacts were in there, right? Like, yeah, I guess so. Early, early on, they were able to slurp your uh, your contacts in. So, I, I, you'll happy to anybody who knows me will be happy to know that I went through and deleted all those seven hundred or so contacts that they had got from my contacts database. And it was interesting. I could tell it was old stuff because, like, for instance, you know, Mark and Jaime weren't in there, and I've known you guys for like you know ten years or so, right? At least Mark, anyway. Um, but yeah, just you know, I think everybody should take the take a minute, go check out what Facebook has on you, and and decide whether or not you wanted them to. Have have it, have it in their in their stores, you know. Yeah, I, it's funny that I came to the same conclusion that Mark did, which is, oh, I bet you you had some version of the Facebook app prior to iOS cracking down, run right around iOS four or five. I think they did that. But it could have been like right out of, right out of like uh, yeah, uh, never mind iOS. It might have been actually in the the web client, right? Why wouldn't it? You know, back because I mean I was using Facebook long before I had iOS. Well, in the early days, the, the uh, apps, if you remember, apps could access your contact information without. Right. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. So a lot of apps, and I always thought this was kind of a kind of a uh, underhanded thing to do, but a lot of apps would just grab all your contact information without telling you and just ship it up and use that for marketing purposes to contact right, right, yeah. other people. So I, I don't know if Facebook was doing that, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if they were doing that. Uh, yeah, that's true. There was a lot of unscrupulous use of, yeah. of uh, your data back yeah. in the day. Yeah, and and that's different than using the Facebook API at the time, which allowed you access to all of your Facebook friends' information. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's not clear which which or both the Cambridge Analytica data is based on. It might be, could be both, probably both. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, my, I wasn't sort of zeroing on Cambridge Analytica more. I was focusing on the fact that I think people should take the time and go and look and see what's actually there. <laughs> yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you one last question, Tim. Um, sure. Did you ever have an Android device where you may have logged into Facebook. Um, I'd like to say no, but that's not true. I do. I do have an old. Um, like I had the original tablet that came out from Samsung, um, the Galaxy Tab. Mm-hmm. Right? I still have one of those. Yeah, it's a piece of crap. Yeah, but it still works. Yeah, yeah. So, but you're, you're right. I, I probably did log into Facebook on that device. Yeah. Why? So that gets interesting because just as we talked about how an older version of iOS um, did not have user controls, um, access controls based on uh, contacts uh, back in the day. Um, Android has sort of a, a, a funny thing where um, apps could ask for the permission to access your SMS and your phone calling history. Mm. Right, right. Um, ostensibly for like usability reasons. So if it's like, imagine you, you log into something and they're going to send you a 2FA code over SMS. Well, it's kind of inconvenient to type in the four characters that are right there on, on your screen. So why not give the app access to uh, slurp up that information and just log you in right then? Right, like it, it's even easier. I've had discussions with Android friends about how that sounded kind of weird and creepy to me. I mean, I could see if it was a one-time use permission, but have it be forever seemed like a bad idea back in 2012 or 2013 when I was talking to someone about this. And lo and behold, um, Facebook's Messenger app was doing just that, and people were like, "What the hell? Why, why is all this call log information in my uh, my data dump from Facebook?" I was like, well, it's because you had an Android device that you logged into Facebook or Facebook 
Facebook Messenger. And it, at that time, Android allowed you to do that very thing without even prompting. If you installed the app, they had access to everything. Not true anymore. And as of today, Facebook um, backed off on, on how they implement that feature. So it's a, a little less creepy. But uh, yeah, that, that's, that's sort of what came to my mind when I was hearing about this contacts information that you had, Tim. What I've been noticing with Facebook lately is like, you'll be using the app and you'll use it for months and then it'll update and settings that you've had for privacy and security and things like that, like randomly get set back to what you didn't set them to. And it's frustrating. And yeah, it definitely wins. they're changing their their uh, their analogs on the fly, and and you have to go in and and check your privacy from time to time. It's yeah, they randomly. Didn't we talk I mean, to, even basic basic settings like like sound. One day I I know because I can't stand having all those extra sounds in my apps, and I know that I have turned it off, and like the app will update, and boom, I got sounds again. It's like no, and then I go and I check the privacy, and it's like I've got all these these advertising settings and, and yeah. contact settings. I'm like what? No, I didn't set that stuff. Where is this coming from? So it's very frustrating that that the, these things that, that you've you've gone through and you've you've made the effort to make sure that your contact information and your private data is private and and your friends and your friends of friends is all private. Yeah. And then they go and change it. It's like, come on, that, that's just not really cool. Yeah. I've got a really, really, really other good solution for that. You want to hear it? Yeah. Delete, delete your Facebook. account. Delete Facebook. Yep. And I would, and I, I, you know, I wouldn't use Facebook if I wasn't a thousand miles away from my my family, and it's yeah. it's really the only the only contact I have. And I was just having this conversation with my mother the other day. It's like, neither one of us likes to go on to social media anymore because it's just a constant barrage of garbage and negativity and, and, and just not a pleasant experience. And yet neither one of us are willing to kill our accounts because it really is. There's that, that satellite cousin or sister or whatever that's often the boonies, right? Right. And it's, 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 easier for us to have this this uh, group access where you know she can talk to her kids and and I can talk to my brother and talk to my mom and we try and do that stuff outside of all that other negativity but it 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 just you know people are seeing things you don't want them to see and I always go back to the well if you put it out there it's not it's not private but still you know when you set a setting you don't expect it to randomly change because of an update or some arbitrary thing that's the frustrating part well, it's even come up in our Canadian government. We're talking; they were talking about Facebook the other day. That um, you know, governments of I'm sure of many countries are starting to think that Facebook has way too much, you know, on us, if you will. Like they have too much control over what we what they can say and know about us, really, right? Um, and like you know, this whole this whole, whole thing that Jaime was talking about with the the you know the EU wanting to give people the right to to look at their stuff. What was it called? The GDP something or other? GDPR. GDPR. Yeah. General Data Protection how, Regulation. How, how accurate is the representation of a person based on what they not. put? On? It's not. It's we not do. because yeah. Spoilers. We have a, spoilers. A, a, right. We have a podcast show. about that on, yeah. on Roundabout. But the, the the truth is like the perception of reality is is almost more important than the reality at this point on social media. I've seen posts on like, oh, well, here's my beautiful picture on Instagram. And when you pull back beyond the borders of that, that square frame, it's a disaster. So we've got all this data collection of not really a true representative picture, picture of this person out there. It's, it's, it's like a fantasy world. 
Yeah, it's built on things that you clicked on in, in, at, the, at the spur of the moment, right? And, and now they've built a profile. Maybe you clicked on midget wrestling with lions. What at about one when point. you're like half asleep and you're looking at stuff <laughs> on the phone? And I've I've liked posts that I've been like, no, I I fell asleep and my thumb hit the oh, button. Really? And yeah, and it's like, whoops. It's the drunk Facebook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tammy and her drunk Facebook trolling. <laughs> Don't let your friends use Facebook drunk. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, but it's it's beyond that. It's like you were just saying, you know, it, it, people evolve. Who you were 10 years ago yeah, is totally. who you are today. And yet when you've got this stuff that you can, like, pull up and be like, you know, 10 years ago you posted this on social media. And you're like, I have grown since then. And I don't believe that this is the case. Yeah. yeah and and I, I don't know. But back to the settings. Don't randomly change stuff. When I say I don't want to share this with with people who are yeah. friends of friends, I really mean that. I don't. It's not an arbitrary decision where I'm like, no, today I don't want to share it with my friends of friends. No, yeah. I really don't want to share that. I want to share it with the people I want to share it with, with the understanding that yes, if I put it out there, it's public and people can break in. And but those are the nefarious people. Those are the people who I don't believe our society is 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 filled with. I think they're the one offs. They're out there. Yeah, I get it. But aside from those people who are breaking in and stealing our data, if I say I only want to share this with these people, that's my expectation. Right. Well, they do give you access to do that, but the, the, I think that... Yeah, but the, they change the settings. I know, I know. I, I, and I think that's that's the sad part about it is that, again, like I have family members who use Facebook, and again, we use it, you know, to Carol uses it to, to keep in touch with those people. She's in there every day. I see her scrolling through Facebook, but... Um, it took us this long to get those rural, you know, cousins and relatives on the Facebook. You know, they're, you know, they're not computer types like we are, right? And now, how are we how are we going to get them off, right? That's the thing, right? I mean, it's all well and good. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter and Facebook, you know, taking exactly the position you suggest, Mark, and that's deleting their Facebook account, right? But yeah, anyway, this is this could this could be an entire broadcast. (laughs) All right, let's move on to some cheery topics about Apple and stuff. Putting the wheels back on. um, As I said, if you were sad about messages in iCloud and AirPlay two being cut from iOS eleven point three, well, you're in luck because iOS eleven point four and tvOS eleven point four put it right back in. So if you're really interested in that, you can try the public beta and uh, hopefully they make the cut this time it would really be terrible to have to wait till ios 12 for whatever it is that's going on with uh, messages on icloud and airplay too um i'm sad they're not available but i'd rather have it fully baked from day one rather than run into weirdo problems so sure so uh, I, I missed what uh, what you're talking about with i what what are you what this what's the implication of messages in icloud and so on and so forth that's when it'll let you store your iMessages in icloud so if you've seen like your message conversations between mac os and and um, let's say your iPhone. Oh, they're not always iPad. in sync. You mean, yeah, yeah, like like absurdly so, right? Like I don't know how the current logic works of how it sends information, but there'll be completely different sort of sets of of information if you're that's true, looking yeah, at things. Yeah. yeah, so this will play out. Are you saying that the messages on my phone, for example, through iMessage, don't line up to the ones that are on my Mac? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing like... The same? Maybe because I never leave the house and everything gets updated <laughs> all the time, but <laughs> mine, mine are totally in sync. I'm not I'm not seeing this thing that you're talking about. Oh, interesting. Well, like try try like a conversation. In fact, start like two or three conversations, um, sort of sprinkle them across your iPhone, your iPad, and your MacBook Pro. But I and, do. And really, and, and they're all perfectly yeah, in sync. Like, There's no out-of-order messages. They are perfectly in sync. Even, even the phone calls now, like ever since they started doing the um 
handoff and, and yeah, that yeah. sort of stuff. Like everything, if if a if a call comes in, my house like vibrates because everything rings. If a message comes in and I send it out from from my phone because I happen to be my phone is in my hand, and then I go over to the other table, it's immediately on my computer. But again, maybe that's just a product of my environment where pretty much I don't leave the house and everything is connected. So you're in all Wi-Fi, the time. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, because I think I know what you mean, though, Kwame, because I've seen some conversations that, because I'm befuddled by it sometimes, because I see, I see like messages from people on my Mac that I, that I, I have, that I, sorry, I have messages on my phone that aren't on my Mac. I know what you're saying, Jaime. And it's, maybe it's because we're out in the field and cellular when we're doing that. Oh, are, yeah. Could it be because, like, like I know that on um, on my phone and, and on my, my Mac, when uh, there is a significant delay between when those messages sync up, when it's from an Android user, like when it's a, a green SMS message. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the only time I'll see a delay. But when it's a direct blue eye message, I mean, it's it's immediate for me. Well, I think the other thing, too, could be, too, like, I don't have, like, for instance, I don't have messages running here on this Mac right now, right? And if I open it up, it won't necessarily sync with where my phone and my iPad are, which are always on, right? I think that's what you mean, Jaime, by them having synced on iMessage, right? Syncing on iCloud, right, Would, would be that my Mac would then be able to update once I opened it, right? Yeah, I don't I don't know the the full details as to why things do or don't line up, but for pretty much since the, the get go of, of iMessage, they've they've not lined up, right? And and the promise for messages in iCloud is that they will and that everything will be just as seamless as if you were using um, right, yeah. Just about every like, other messenger uh, type of, of interface. Oh, that's where, true, yeah, like, like Slack does, because Slack's in the cloud, essentially, right? They're on the Slack cloud. Yeah, I, I've seen local things that are kind of goofy on the, the iOS client, but usually more like it's it decided not to delete something locally rather than um, having things out of order or missing things mysteriously. But yes, you're, you're right. Like, if you use Slack on your phone or if you're using the official client or you're logged into your, you know, your Chromebook or your Windows laptop... Like, like it, it doesn't matter. You see the same exact content. So I have I have one machine that, that I happen to use strictly for recording. So it only it, it's only active online when I'm either doing a podcast or making a video for for a tutorial or something along those lines. When I send a message, like I said before, it goes out and it, it updates immediately. When I when I flip up that that recording machine only, it's obviously behind because it's it, it generally only gets used maybe once or twice a week. I'll notice as soon as I open it up and messages launches, I can see like it, it it's boom, 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 boom. All these messages from like the, the previous few days, they do roll up. They do eventually catch up. But maybe be, again, because you guys are offline and online so often that that's like a usual thing for you. For me, it's just as soon as I open it, it takes maybe 30 seconds to update, but it's all there. So I guess try the other thing. I've, I've noticed it has trouble with deletions, not just additive, but like, oh, I deleted that conversation from my phone. Oh, and it I still never exists delete. on my iPad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever deleted a conversation from my phone. Not not because I it just, you should see my email. There's like 10,000. Oh, I delete my messages, but I'm sorry, my email, but not my, you write text messages and I keep them too. And I even have a program on my Mac that backs them up. Oh, I don't, I just don't delete them because I'm lazy, not because like. Oh, I need them for proof. <laughs> so here's the uh, Tim just comes stockpiling the incriminating evidence. <laughs> don't send Tim messages unless you want it used against you in the court of law. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'll see you later. All right, are we putting this puppy to bed? Yeah. All right, so... Okay, so so the next story is from me. How about that? I'm stealing the show back. Um, so Apple has, plan- has, has a, a plan- I guess, announced now that... Or plans to... Or there's a rumor that they will start using their own chips, um, their own design chips, uh, as of uh, 2020, or as early as 2020, um, replacing Intel, and actually, uh, I have a note here from Ian King. I think on um, Bloomberg had mentioned that they're not made by Apple; they're made by TSMC, which I'm sure Mark will jump in and help us out on this one. But um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Thank you, but but they're not they're not made. They're designed by Apple, per se, maybe, but they're not. These are the A10s and the A10X and the A11. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean. Yeah. Almost almost no one in the world right now, except for Intel, makes their own microprocessor-level chips. Right, uh, right. It's all, it, it, and chips in general, actually, except for very custom boutique stuff. It's all done in foundries. Uh, and oh, yeah. So design, you know, they're designed by what are called fabulous design houses, and then and then built in the in the foundries like TSMC or UMC, uh, which is another Taiwanese foundry, or uh, there's there's several others, Samsung, and so you know all the chips that Apple makes for the iPhones and iPads and all that; those are all done in in foundries. We've talked about this a, a bunch of times actually on the show. Sure. Uh, you can take the same design and manufacture it either. In some cases, you can take the same design, manufacture it in TSMC or Samsung or wherever, and and get more capacity or bargain you know bargain for better pricing or whatever based on your sure. capability. Yeah. yeah. So it would be it would be shocking and unheard of if Apple decided to actually manufacture their own chips at this point. Right, but I, I think so. The implication of one is that they're replacing Intel as as the, the the chip on the Mac, right? And and if they do move towards it, I guess there's been a lot of speculation about sort of the iOSification of Mac OS. Um, in that a lot more kind of uh, frameworks and things like that we have on iOS could come to the Mac. I think there's also that Project Marzipan um, that Jaime mentioned a couple of weeks ago, which is the sort of uh, melding of the two OSs. Uh, what yeah. do you think about that? It makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, right now, Intel chips are the x86 architecture, right. which still is you know, the old, the same architecture historically as the Pentium, and even before that, the 8086, you know, going back you know, almost 40 years now. Dawn of time yeah. yeah almost yeah uh and and all the you know the arm chips are well they're an arm architecture and they're just they're not compatible with each other uh so if all of apple's devices now at least use the same architecture well it would be really easy to you know build for one architecture and then run it on all the different devices it would be a really really nice thing uh all those all those uh issues in xcode that you've probably run across at some point where where uh you have to change the uh valid architectures or or allowed architectures, or or it doesn't have the right slice, or something like that. The yeah, exactly. Weird, yeah, yeah. Weird cryptic build issues are, that are caused by our, uh, these are these different architectures. Those would all presumably go away, which would be real nice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We've run across that a number of times. Where yeah, because you need the x eighty six to run simulator stuff on this, the Mac simulator, right? Whereas right. you don't need those in, in builds on actual physical devices. 
Yeah, because in order to run anything on a Mac, you need a, it has to run on an x86 architecture. Right, to right. To run yeah. on an iPhone, it has to be an ARM architecture. Yeah, and that makes the build bigger and all that kind of stuff too, right? Sure. It's a completely whole different slice. Well, I mean, in, in theory, you know, you right now you you kind of choose one or the other. So so it's it's fairly rare to make a single you know fat executable they're they're called that has both an x86 architecture and an ARM architecture. You almost you almost never would do that right now because there's no no need for it because no device can handle both. But yeah, potentially, yeah, if it's if you are building for the multiple slices, it will it would definitely be much bigger. Right, and it could also be that you're using a third party um, framework or library that only only includes the uh, the uh, iOS slices, right? And then you wouldn't be able to run right. it in simulator, for instance. Like I think we had, yep. I think AR and stuff like that is an example where. I don't know if it's because of the technology of not having a camera or whatever, but um, I, I believe I've run across frameworks in the past where you had to run it on uh, a physical device, right? To, to yeah, it, test it's it. mostly just because the library provider didn't build it for the... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Later. That's the main reason, yeah. Right, yeah, but that would go away. Yeah, so that's yep. kind of interesting stuff. It, it, uh, uh, I don't know if you saw the nosedive that Intel stock took after this announcement. It literally, like if you looked at the graph of... It looked, you know how you, the stock chart usually looks like a, a mountain range? It's like all of a sudden the mountain wave just dropped into the sea, yeah. like the cliffs of Dover, right? Um, and I think Apple's stock went down a little bit too at, at the same time or uh, around the same time of the announcement. But I, w- I don't know if Intel's recovered, but it was quite a drop. Uh, the other yeah, I think they did recover. I, I, that that was kind of just an emotional reaction. I think yeah. is, you know, there's, this is not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, it's going to be a couple of years, and and it may not even happen. I mean, it, you know, sure. Apple could could have the best intentions to do this, and lots of things can happen. They may decide a year from now that oh, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense do this anymore because it's too much work or too hard or Right. Or, to, you or know, not ready for time, time. Yeah, they don't have the right staff or w- whatever. You know, uh, there's many a million reasons why they might not want to. Or Intel offers them a bargain price or something like that, and all of a sudden it makes sense to stay with Intel. You know, it may it may not ever happen, but I, I'm not surprised at all that Apple's looking into it and maybe even doing preliminary work on it for sure. I mean, it'll it'll take them a couple of years to design a large multiprocessor like that, uh, anyway. So yeah, we'll see. I think it would be a great thing, but you know, it's for sure no guarantee yet that. It's going to happen. Yeah, so I've got a link in the show notes here for uh, from Walt Mossberg, who's who's now retired, but he was with uh, Blue Merck for a long time, and he's been he's you know, obviously in the tweet he said the same thing. He's been talking about this for a number of years, and, and it's an interesting thread if people want to read through some of the thoughts that people have had on on. Um, you know, uh, moving to a single uh, platform creator for for uh, iOS and macOS in the case of Apple doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, so I guess we should move on to our picks. Is it that time? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have uh, well, there's a pick here that that Jaime put on uh, the list that he says that I can have, so I'll, I'll take it. Um, it's a uh, URL for. Um, do we know who made this, Jaime? I believe uh, we do, but I hesitate to. It's not an yeah, official it, website. They don't have their information anywhere, so I hesitate. To to, to out them if that's if that's the case. Sure. Um, so it is done by Xcode releases, and you can see their their Twitter account on there. Right. So they Xcode releases has published a listing a, a, a listing to the URLs, uh, build information on all of the builds of Xcode that you could ever want to have. Uh, the ones with discount uh, sort of downloadable links as well, all the way back to Xcode one, which. Uh, let's see. Will this podcast be released before our trivia thing? 
Uh, the RWW Con Trivia Night, Saturday. This podcast? If I get this out on Saturday. You're not going to get this out by Saturday. You don't know me that well. <laughs> no, you, no. You need to be engaged with the people who are here and All not right. locked in your hotel. So what did we decide? Anything. We were talking about uh, Xcode 1.0. Before Xcode 1.0 was called iPhone something or other. It was iPhone. Uh, when I came into it, was iPhone like 3 point something. It was just iPhone. No, 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 not the OS. So, uh, Mark, do you remember what the name of the uh, what Xcode? was before it was Project Builder. Does that sound know. familiar? No, it was Interface Builder and Project no, I'm gonna have to. I'm going to have to hit the Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all the way back to 1.0. Is, uh, but uh, this is when, when was that? That was September 20, September 2003. I'm pretty sure it was called Project Builder. The weird thing to me is I actually don't know where the name Xcode comes from and if it has anything at all to do with Mac OS Maybe 10. Maybe it's 10 code. Maybe we've been saying it all along. Wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you are in throat punching distance now, so I, I yeah. might want to be very careful with what comes out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling this is one of the questions I put on the on our, our trivia trivia night, which is why I was saying that it was it wasn't originally called Xcode; it was called something else, or it was de- it was derived from something else. Let's have a quick look here. It was Interface Builder and... Histories. Yes, no, I was right. It was called Project Builder. I win. Project Builder, really? Yeah. I don't think I've ever referred to it as Project Builder, ever. No, this is going back to, like, before 2003. I know, but I was doing it then. You were writing apps for Mac? This is before iOS. Oh, then no. No. Well, I was doing doing NetBeans. So iOS was 2008. That's when I came into iOS. Yeah. So, Mark, you weren't doing Mac stuff back then, were you? No. The only, back then, the only thing I was doing was, like I said, cross-platform with, like, NetBeans and stuff. Right. So, okay, so here's some, a little bit of history here for you, Jaime. It was originally called Project Builder, and it was it came out of Next Step, Next right? Next Step, yeah. Is um, their first IDE. And then it was uh, rewritten and informally dubbed PBX. PB10, uh, well, according to you. PB10, yeah. <laughs> Peanut Butter 10. Peanut Butter 10. <laughs> And then uh, you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Peanut butter ten. Yeah, and then uh, then it became uh, Xcode when it was released uh, for ten point three. What was that? That was uh, Panther. Oh, I can't remember those yeah, Panther. names for yeah. this stuff. Yeah, so there you go. A little bit of history for you. I now know the answer to which Xcode was the very first Xcode that I ever used. Um, this, this list is so helpful. So apparently it was Xcode 4.1 because uh-huh. it would be July of 2011, which is around the time that I uh, started using um, or started developing or learning how to develop. 10 code? You mean 10 code? For 10 code. 10 code 4.1 <laughs> because it lists macOS 10.7 plus, and that would be Lion. And I remember having to upgrade uh, a really old dusty snow leopard oh, right. mac macbook pro to lion so it must have been that one it could not have been 4.0.2 and xcode 4.1 is true of of xcode without built-in interface builder was a separate yeah tool. that was a pain i remember that yeah, yeah so i started around X, uh, xcode 3 sorry 10 yeah. code 3 um and uh <laughs> and and you're right that, uh, for me as a new new uh developer on on mac it was really confusing to build to build things in an interface builder, there was some weird sort of way of sending that connection back to the Xcode itself. Once you went in, you remember you used to go and build the interface. See, you know, my, I'm, I'm trying to remember back then, but mine, I I remember it being very seamless and painless, and I was like, well, 
how are these two apps communicating the best? Yeah, as communicating back and forth. As yeah, they were doing and with very little interaction from me. I mean, I just they, it like everything with Apple at that time, it just worked. Yeah, and there was a, but there was like a secret handshake. You had to go to the file menu and say send this to Xcode or something like that. No. Do you remember that, Mark? Yes, I do. See? I have a, ter- yeah. I have a terrible memory. Yeah. It's a tinfoil. I'm telling you, it's too thick. It's just too leaking thick. into aluminum is leaking into your head. Right, I can I can see that. <laughs> All right, if I could see, <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. Um, okay, so Jaime, do you have a pick? I do. Um, it's even semi follow up too. So a few episodes ago, we talked about Google's uh, course for machine learning, sort of a crash learning sort of course. There's something uh, a little bit like that coming out from Microsoft, who is Ooh. offering this both as a free auditable course or as a paid. You actually get a credential for completing the course, sort of course for machine learning. Notably, it seems to be uh, a little bit longer than than Google's. Google's I feel wasn't quite as many modules and quite as many hours. Um, per module. It's, it's more of like a crash course, you know, Sam's learn machine learning in 24 hour, uh, 24 days sort of thing. 21 days, 24 hours. I can't remember what the book series is, but you know what I'm talking about. And kind of interesting is that they're still developing some of the modules. Um, there will be, when I looked at the, the curriculum, there are uh, some basic courses you end up having to take, but then there's like elective sort of things. So if you want to do um, voice recognition, if you want to do natural language, excuse me, natural language processing or I think image recognition or detection. I can't remember what it was basically sort of like vision right yeah vision vision type stuff vision-esque Vision-esque. Um, and they also have a segment on, or a, a course module on ethics in machine learning, which I can't remember if Google's does, but I thought that was pretty interesting and timely, giving uh, a lot of the conversation that's going on around AI, deep learning, machine learning, and unconscious bias, systemic bias, unintentional bias that can happen from, from data sets, right? Like, whoops, it turns out that, uh, you know, this particular vision framework, you know, happens to be really good at uh, light skinned males and not so good at dark skinned females well that probably has something to do with the data set that the uh, you know the model was trained on uh, even if it was accidental and, and, and clearly not intentional i think that's probably what will be covered in that ethics piece as well as things like you know what are uh, ethical considerations when deploying like if you were to use machine learning models let's say hypothetically to figure out you know what sort of prison sentence should somebody get or minority report style like well people who buy donuts at tim hortons at 4 p.m. on Thursdays. Well, you might as well just lock them up now because that's that's somebody who's going to commit a crime, right? Right. So all of that in mind, um, I'd say check it out. I, I'm definitely going to review the the two courses between Microsoft and Google's and sort of consider which one I might want to try. Cool. Except that it's Microsoft. Is it? <laughs> as you might expect, Google's <laughs> Google's courses use uh, Google's um, you know cloud resources and their their tools like you know GCP and TensorFlow and then surprise surprise Microsoft's is pretty heavily predicated on using Azure's services so um, you know that's a consideration but I think the techniques will be very similar and very very portable once you learn the you know the hows whens and whys of machine learning are going to be the same the specifics of how do you do a linear regression using TensorFlow versus whatever the equivalent is on the Azure side, those might differ a little bit. Mark, do you have a pick? I do have a pick. Uh, one of my favorite things, I guess I, I could say, of, of the new Swift 4.1, or, or I don't know if it's a favorite, but it's something that I've definitely been using already, uh, even though 4.1 hasn't been out that long, is the new compact map function. Uh, so if anyone uh, has used the flat map function, which is which has been around in Swift for a long time, uh, you'll know that flat map does a whole bunch of things. It, it's it's very closely related to the map 
mapping function, which takes an array of things and and does a uh, some kind of operation on all of them and collects the results back. Well, flat map uh, did that, but had a little bit more power. It could flatten hierarchies if you had you know the each each item in your in your uh, in your array that you were mapping has you know uh, another array that is an arbitrary number of things. You could you can, and you wanted to flatten it all into one single array. Flat map could do that. Another thing that flat map could do, which was which was very useful, and actually the thing I use it for most is if you have an array that has a mixture of uh, regular variables and optional values, so potentially nil values, and you want to pull out all of the the nil values and just get a get an array back that's not an optional uh, that has a set of values that are guaranteed to not be optionals, uh, then you could use flat map. So uh, you just have it in your in your condition statement if it's you you return you return an optional that is either a value or a nil and it will take out all the nils and, and just give you an array of, of actual values very very useful thing uh, but it's a little confusing because flat map does multiple things or did do multiple things I, I just mentioned a couple of them there's even a couple more uh, now the in the new version of Swift they've split up the functionality and flat map is still around and it does most of the things that uh, that flat map could do except for this one removing of optionals step there's a new function called a compact map that uh, that does that instead and I guess the, the the naming is it it compacts your your array or your list into a smaller one that has all the optionals removed so real useful thing in, in Swift 4.1 uh, and uh, if you're interested in it there's a nice little article here it's very short by the guys that use your loaf uh, that explains exactly what compact map does and what flat map still does now after after the change so it's uh, you know real quick read it's pretty much just one page and tells you everything you need to know to use this uh, pretty useful thing cool and so so in swift 4.1 now you don't you don't use comp so you don't use flat map to do that kind of compacting as you mentioned you use you use compact you specifically map use this one yes yes right okay cool neat right so tammy do you have a pick I do have a pick. It's an older app that I had used in the past and switched to something else and now back to, but text editors, code editors, things like oh, okay, that. okay. You know, I, I jump between TextMate and, and ByWord and uh, TextEdit. And one that I used a while ago that I've just started reusing again is Atom. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I know I know people are like, oh, yeah, of course, Atom. But it's, it's one of those things where, like... I started using all these other things, and I forgot that I even had that. And <laughs> I don't know what caused me to to hit that icon on my dock, but I did. And now I'm starting to use it more often and remembering exactly what I liked about it. You know, the, the code highlighting. The, the so why did you go away from it? I don't remember. I I think that I I'm I'm still very heavily into using TextMate, and I'm actually using ByWord a lot less than than I had. But I think um, I used TextMate so much that it just Adam fell off my radar. And specifically with this project that that caused me to to click on that icon on my dock again was I wanted the really brightly colored syntax highlighting, mm-hmm. and it was for an HTML type deal. And uh, TextMate just wasn't... It, it, 
the differentiation between the colors weren't there, and, and I just all right, Adam, boom, here it is, and I'm really I'm I'm liking getting reacquainted with it. So that's my pick for this week. Does it do things like if you pick if you put your cursor in a variable and select uh, that that particular variable, does it highlight all the other variable instances in the document, like like um, Net NetBeans does? That I don't know, but um, I know that it handles like project stuff really well. You know where you can load a bunch of files and then have references between them. So I, oh, really? Okay. Yes, yeah, so I'd imagine that maybe it does that, but hmm. I don't know. I don't really know. I know Xcode does it. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. Cool. I, I, it's funny. Like I, I see a lot of people discussing Markdown editors all the time. I'm not. I'm not a big Markdown user, right? But it's, uh, it's, I, Adam is the only one I have and the only one I use. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I use BB Edit as well. Yeah, and I and I've got BB Edit, and maybe who knows? I'll get reacquainted with that. But I mean, it's like when you go into the this one Slack channel, it's like all the time. It's you know every other couple days, it's boom. Oh, here's editors. a brand new Markdown editor. Yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. It, that, that's I know that Slack channel that, you're talking about. Yeah, that discussion <laughs> never goes away because it, you know you you find these tools and you use them, and then you find these other tools and you use those, and and it's like a round robin thing. You 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 eventually come back to the ones that are good that are worth it and adam is one of those like you know if, if i'm using an app and i use it for a few days and or, or months or weeks or whatever the case may be and it doesn't provide me value i delete that because i'm working on a laptop 99 percent of the time i only have 500 gig i can't have it take up that space now here's adam here's here's this app that i had that i stopped using but it still provided enough value to me that I didn't delete it off my system. And granted, right, it's yeah. not a huge app. No, it's tiny. But the fact is, I didn't. I didn't drag it into the trash. It was there for when I needed it again. And and it's like it's like falling in love all over again. And hmm. that's why I made it my pick. All right. So Interesting. Tammy, the last time I remember us talking about text editors, and it's been a while, you were using Visual Studio Code, which I didn't hear oh, right, yeah. listed. Yeah. I still use that, but only for Unity stuff. And and somebody, I think it was Greg, who, who mentioned, like, well, if you like it so if you like it so much, why don't you marry it? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he didn't say that. <laughs> but, but what he did say was, you know, you, you were talking about Visual Studio Code, why aren't you using it to do all these other things? And I don't know if it's because of this compartmentalizing that I've done with it, but I've got it mentally in my brain for some reason that uh, VS Code is just for Unity. When you're doing Unity stuff, use that. And kind of like with ByWord, when I'm doing like creative writing, I'm using ByWord. But when I'm doing markdown stuff where I'm writing tutorials and things like that, I'm using either TextMate or, or now back to Atom. So there's certainly this this thing for me where a certain tool, even though it can be used for multiple things, for me it's got a specific function and I use it for that function and I have another tool similar for another specific function and I'll go to that one, even though they provide the same thing. So VS Code, I love it, but I'm only using it for Unity stuff. Interesting, interesting. Uh, I mean, it makes sense because if I remember correctly, Unity stuff is predominantly coded in C Sharp, but it kind of makes sense that Visual Studio Code would have really good support for that. Yeah, and I think um, there's also plugins too, right? Which is what used to be like what they did for that. But from what I understand, and I've and, and I might be wrong about.
about this. I'm pretty sure they're getting rid of MonoDevelop and replacing it with VS Code. Right. And there's tons of plugins that I remember seeing on the Visual Studio Code page for oh, uh, Ruby and Node and minutes. Swift, even Golang, you know, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Cool. And it's just a text editor. More it than does just some, a text editor. It, it does some <laughs> stuff. It's like very plug-in architecture uh, enabled, I guess. Like I've seen people like, oh, you can uh, do Docker. You can do uh, manage your Kubernetes cluster. VS Code. Uh, VS Code. I, I don't know if TextMate or others do that, but I know that, that VS Code does. TextMate has a lot of what they call bundles, and you can even write your own bundles. You can modify bundles. Um, the only downside with TextMate is I'm not sure where it is as far as development. Like, I don't know if it's currently being developed or I know that there was like some sort of open source that they've done with it. I, I purchased it like five years ago or whatever it was and uh, I, I don't I don't know that I'd use it for actual TextMate code. you're talking about? TextMate. Yeah. Isn't that from that's not the one that's the same one that's from right, BB Edit. from Macromates. Oh okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I always got to mix up with the one that, that uh, BB Edit used to do. I don't know. I, I, I never fell in love with and Text Wrangler is another one. The text Wrangler yeah that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah, I think the Text Wrangler is gone now. Is it gone? Which one's the one that has the rope? That's Wrangler That's right? Text Wrangler yeah. yeah. The one that the one that the, the people Bojimbo or whatever they are or sorry not BB who makes BB edit? Um Bare, uh, bare bones. Bare bones. The one, the one that they made that was like a sort of a BB edit light. They they discontinued it a while ago. No, there is one that that I just found not not too recently, but somewhat recently, maybe within the past year, is uh, Stack Edit, mm-hmm. which is an online tool, and it's really good. Like mm. it, it doesn't, you know, because with with Markdown, especially with Markdown, there's different versions of Markdown, different flavors. So what you're using in one editor will try. Translate well won't necessarily work. Well, is that way they're, they're not all the same? Like, yeah, there's there's all sorts of different. Flavors yeah, because like inside Jira, there's a Markdown editor in the notes, and it's yeah. different than the syntax highlighting, or is different than yeah, I don't know. GitHub flavor, which is different than uh, Common Mark, the one that tried to then standardize things. There's multi-markdown. Right. There's, there's plain uh, markdown. True, true artisanal markdown from uh, uh, John Gruber. I was so going to say, wasn't, isn't the one that Gruber made? Shouldn't that be the the Bible part yeah, of the but expression? He, it, it, that one, that one doesn't have a lot of things that the other flavors of markdown do, like tables, right? Things like. Like, that. wasn't the whole idea behind markdown to make a simple, streamlined way of editing? Yes. Right? They can be easily converted. Like you can read it, you know, as plain text, and it kind of looks like it's styled enough, so you can tell what a bulleted list is. You can tell what a header is, um, and it becomes pretty easy to be translated into markup for things like HTML, for example, um, mm. which is things like GitHub. You know, if you're commenting on a pull request, you can use their particular flavor of Markdown to do interesting, nice stylistic things. The, my biggest gripe with it, and it's kind of like a pro and a con all mixed in together, is the the lack to, the lack of hard rules like you know if you're if you're creating a header you can put your hash marks on the front and the end so when you're looking at someone's document who does that and then someone's document who doesn't do that if there's no like standardization and that's kind of good but kind of bad like it's nice that you have the flexibility of writing it in a way that works for you but it's kind of bad because then you have to adapt to all these different styles of writing so I'm kind of on the fence 
with with the um, the rules around it. I think ultimately I like that though. I think what it tells me is there probably should be a linter for Markdown that you can configure very similar to Swift Lint, mm-hmm. where some people like tabs, some like spaces, some like Egyptian braces, some like lobster braces. Whatever you choose, it would be nice to have a linter to make those consistent so you're not arguing in pull requests, for example, about like, gosh darn it, put your darn hashtags at the front or the back or whichever one you choose. What the heck is an Egyptian brace? And like the way that brace. Swift prefers where if you're doing like a function, um, method, uh, like a method name, you know how you put like the opening curly brace on the same line as like your init, you know, the name, the literal name init. Right. Oh, the declaration, versus, method declaration, yeah. So yes, thank like you, method declaration. for putting it on the same line versus putting it on a new line? Uh, new line where they line up kind of like a lobster's claws is, or, or crab braces, I think is the alternative I've heard for. I need to get out the, more. That's the style I prefer personally. I know it's going to shock a lot of people well, in the audience. Better than jelly braces. But, um, you know, when I was writing... <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should, come up with, that, didn't you? we should come up with that. Uh, when I was writing Objective C, I always preferred uh, lobster braces. Wait, no, which wait? The lobster's the one with it on, on the same, same line. line. Yeah, that's uh, no, the wrong new line, line, right? New Mark? line. No, new no, line. but it's not the wrong. See, I put no. it on the same line. So as the declaration, right? I do too. Yes, even in PHP, I do. Yeah, for Objective C, I always preferred having lobster braces. Lobster um, braces the Swift oh. community really heavily from day one decided that Egyptian braces were the way to go and I had no real reason to fight it so I, no, I used Egyptian, Egyptian is the one where it's on its own line no that's where it's on the same line as a declaration so if you see the like if you just look at it visually like if you just kind of blur your eyes a little bit it kind of looks like Egyptian hieroglyphics where the left yeah. arm is kind of going one way yeah, and the so right you, arm is going the other versus like lobster braces where they're pinching so those of you driving at home Miss Tammy in the room who actually did the, the Egyptian pose a few minutes ago <laughs> I was I was walking like an Egyptian <laughs> and I was singing the song along with it in my head. Yeah. So originally I used to put But my, you know what? Let's 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 wait. be realistic about Egyptian braces versus lobster braces. I'm still confused. The Egyptians the drew characters that way because they didn't know how to draw three quarter perspective. So because they couldn't draw a human being in a three quarter perspective, we're now stuck with whether the curly brace should be on the same line or the next line. I don't know. I am a reformed next liner, right? Because I used to, you know, back in the day. Lobster was, braces? Is that, oh, okay, so lobsters that on, lobsters on the same Okay, line. so I was a lobster. And then, the, you know, directive came down and said, no, no, no it's got to be on, on the same line. And, and I was like, no, this, this looks weird. I don't like it. I, you know, i got to follow the rules, so whatever. And as I did it more, I think it, 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 it's better. And it's kind of like, oh, well, here's new Swift. Get rid of Objective-C. And I hated it Swift when it first came out. Now I'm like, I love it. And it's the same way with the Egyptian braces. <laughs> Egyptian, right? Yes. You know, what my little people's... <laughs> What might blow people's minds is, you know, that's the way our community is. But if you look at the Golang community, um, it's quite interesting because there there are no discussions about this. Because the one true way of writing your Swift, sorry, your Go programming language code is you write it however you please. And you use the Go format command to format it the actual way it's supposed to be formatted. And this is just the way they do it. Like, there's no linter equivalent because the linting job is being done by the formatter. It's very very odd to me like it's so different than the you know 
discussion we just had here, and I'm sure discussions that are probably going on in you know in the workplaces for for many people who are listening to this show. Mm-hmm. They also have something weird where um, where we've tried to get more terse, where people felt that Objective C was just a little too verbose, and Swift is uh, more concise and succinct. Uh, Swift itself, the way we write it, is extraordinarily verbose compared to the way that people write Go, where if your variable name has more than one letter in it, you're probably doing it wrong. Hmm. Yeah, it's very very strange to me. So different. You know, we're, we're hypothetically doing the same thing. We're, we're programming computers, and, and yet we go about it in very different ways. Cool. So, hey, that's it for another week. So, Jaime, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. All right. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you? Mark R at SmartSoft.com. And Tammy, if people want to get in touch with you? Um, on Twitter at uh, Paradox927. All right. And uh, did I say my name was Tim Mitra at the beginning of the show? Yeah, you're from Canada and all that other stuff. Yeah. And then currently, currently, I'm in the same yeah, latitude Toronto, as... Toronto. 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 I don't know how you say it, but it's not... Toronto. Right. It's incorrect. The T dot. The six. Yeah, Toronto. Apparently, there's a Z letter in the alphabet. So apparently, my name is Tim Mitra and... I am in, normally in Toronto, Ontario. And uh, yeah, I can be found on Twitter as T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. And that's the best way to get a hold of me. And so until next week, we'll say bye-bye. See ya. Goodbye. Bye. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. some uh, excitement around here up at uh, YouTube yesterday. Oh, yeah. I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's only about 10 miles from where I am, from my office. But, you know, it's funny. That's sort of the, the extreme reaction, but I kind of wondered what would happen when YouTube decided they weren't going to pay people anymore for, unless they had, a, they met a certain threshold. Did you remember, did you hear I, that? No, I don't even know what you're all talking about. So, well, I, I don't know if you've ever gone to like, I was surprised when I went to the last fan expo in Toronto, but there are people who are now famous, like they're stars or celebrities because of their their personality or pers- what do you call it, persona on whether a cosplayer or whatever on YouTube, right? Right, YouTubers, yeah. Like there's there's a guy who you know. But I don't know what Mark's talking about. So what happened? Oh, okay. Well, I'll come back to that. Yeah. Okay. So what happened was yesterday's um, a woman uh, opened fire, went up to YouTube's head office, and pulled out a gun and just started shooting people. Oh.
and eventually killed herself. But she, you know, I think a couple of people got wounded and like 700 or 70 some odd shots were... No, she was a YouTuber who got cut off by them, right? They they decided they weren't going to pay her anymore. Oh, well, that makes sense. Just go randomly kill people because you didn't like what happened. No, that doesn't make sense. What is wrong with people? Well, so I guess this was her way of making... This is her living, as it were, right? I don't know how much money she could possibly have been making, but... But that's what I was saying. This is sort of the the, the, the the most extreme reaction to YouTube deciding that they were going going to... Isn't that right, guys? So there's, that they were setting a level, a minimum level for people who... But is that assumption that that that's the reason this woman snapped? I mean, that... No, they did say she she said something. She was Her father said she was upset with YouTube because they, they stopped. They weren't going to pay her anymore. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. Have you yeah, guys not heard that? So there's a whole... Let's see if I can TLDR it in 30 seconds. Okay, so um, advertisers on YouTube got very upset because if you're Procter & Gamble, you don't want your material, or, sorry, your brand ads shown right in front of uh, alt-right, uh, semi-Nazi, maybe full-on Nazi sort of propaganda videos on YouTube. YouTube management panics, says, okay, we have to shut this down real fast. They try to do some sort of content filtering. This has all sorts of various problems, like it filters out uh, LGBTQ, uh, QA plus community stuff, um, decides that things that are like totally Totally not uh, against anybody's moral standards. Like that happens to be cut out as well. They iterate on it many, many times. They hire a whole bunch of content moderators to try to deal with this, and then they start adding more things as they start having more problems, like with uh, Logan Paul and his um, his video re- that was on the trending page, which is a hand curated uh, section of YouTube. That's like, hey, here's a, like what we think are the most popular, interesting videos. Well, he wait, had wait, a wait, video. Wait, 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 with... Hang on, stop. Logan okay. Paul. What does he do? What is, what he is, is the brother of Jake Paul, who both of them are YouTubers who basically just uh, it's like the you know, like Johnny Knoxville stuff. The but they MTV have a whole bunch of friends, people who follow them, right? Yes, they do. Wait, all sorts like of the, like the, weird the, things. The Disney boy of YouTubers, like the the flowing blonde hair. Him and his brother are like almost twins, but they're not. And they have a lot yes. of teenage girls that follow them. Those guys, those. Okay. Yeah, and they saw a dead girl, dead body it's in a forest or in something. The, in the, yeah, in the trees or something. Yeah. Right, in the forest, in a well-known suicide forest in Japan. Right. And uh, he did, it in, in fact, have a video, um, some sort of video uh, ad sort of program with uh, Disney. He was kicked out of it for that. Um, I can't remember what ended up happening with YouTube. I think he got kicked out of YouTube Red, uh, their subscription program. Uh, so they, they go through that. They're still struggling. And they say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to change our, I think they called it partner program. I can't remember what it was, where you would make videos, you would be able to monetize, you, you get money from having ads displayed on your YouTube video. Um, they changed it so the minimum for you to be eligible for monetization would be um, something like you have to have at least 10,000 views total on your videos. So either one video that's 10,000 views or, you know, 10,000 videos with one view each, I suppose. Um, and, and this is like the really like harder one to do, and have at least a thousand subscribers, which very few in the YouTube community do. And I believe this whole secret of things that has occurred as again for the very beginning youtube is trying to like struggle to like not lose the johnson and johnson procter and gamble you know tide huggies you know all these really big advertisers budgets um they're trying not to lose them and they end up implementing this uh monetization strategy that ends up affecting people like this lady who um i think she was making some sort
sort of like vegan videos, um, anti, um, anti animal abuse videos. And uh, one that came out in the news that, that she was very upset about was, uh, she was doing some sort of like yoga workout type videos. So I've not seen these videos, but I, I would guess she's dressed like you would normally be, uh, as a woman in yoga, you're probably wearing like, um, you know, a midsection showing sort of top. You probably have yoga pants on. And I, I think it was knocked by YouTube's content moderation system is like, yeah, this is not eligible for monetization because this is not family friendly, probably like too sexy or something. And she's like, what the heck? Like Nicki Minaj and all these other people are like showing half their butt crack and that's totally fine. Like, how is that allowed? Like, that's not fair and equitable. And it, it's a whole confluence of things that was coming about. And it, it sort of makes sense that, that this is her, her primary motive because it seems the most consistent with why she would choose YouTube in particular. Um, I think more is still breaking on this story. I, I don't personally think that, um, you know, I don't think the, the, the foibles of YouTube advertising strategy and, and how they're dealing with that. I don't think that's a, a really good, like, well, let's blame the victim for this sort of thing, but it is something to consider as like a consequence, right? Like I would guess that most media companies tend to not have very open campuses probably for this reason, right? Like you probably can't just walk into the New York times or the Washington post and like do this sort of thing. I would presume there's probably security. There's probably guards, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a really, really, really sad situation. So how was she able to just walk into YouTube and start shooting people up because they don't have security or didn't? A lot of tech companies around here are, are surprisingly insecure. <clears throat> I mean, places like you know, <laughs> Apple, well, no pun intended, you know, places like Apple and and uh, and Facebook and and uh, others uh, are locked down a little tighter. But, you know, for Google, for example, is not, uh, you can't get into the buildings, but you can walk into their courtyard right in the middle of all the buildings and, you know, where everybody goes and eats lunch outside. Anybody can just walk right in. And a lot of places are like that. So uh, I don't know whether she actually got into the building or not, or maybe it was just outside of the building, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, it, if she was just outside. It's very, very easy to get access. Yeah, sad day. Yep. We'll never understand the mentality or what drives a person to do that to, to not value life enough. Like yeah, I but just, I don't I think can't. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a conscious decision that they don't value life. I think it's the fact that they're they're not you know they, they're they're having issues or depressed or they're, there's some mental you know breakdown going on that that drives them to think that this is a, a, a reasonable solution, right? Yeah, I just I I don't understand that. I, can never like we just came across a situation where it was this this person murdered this other person and it was so casual for them that they went about their day i mean this particular really? individual i mean i didn't know them i didn't know i just know of the situation but like this particular individual they 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 caught thankfully they caught them but like he allegedly murdered this person and then just went on about his day as if it was like no What's big that mean? deal it's I, like, I don't know if how, you- how do you, I can't, I can't make that connection. But I, mean, I, I don't know if mental illness is the correct terminology, but that's the one I'm going to go with that. There's, there's obviously something, something wrong with that person that they can, that they don't see that as being morally incorrect behavior. Right. Yeah. But just even in, you know, maybe not even to that extreme, just being cruel to another person, not, yeah. not murdering them, not, not, you know, yeah. but just being mean to somebody like why, what, what is, where's the, the payoff for you? Humans are motivated by some sort of positive outcome. I do something because it makes me feel good. Maybe it makes you feel good too. And that making me feel good, that's the driving thing. The you feeling good is just the 
the benefit of that. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if we're driven by that positive read a book called the psychopath thing, test, the psychopath there, test. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a journalistic study of, of, uh, well, the mental health, health industry in general, but specifically how it relates to diagnosing and treating psychopaths of which apparently there's a much larger percentage in the world po- human population than you might think or be comfortable of thinking. Wow. Uh, and psychopaths basically by definition are people who don't have the same emotional responses that other people have. Right. And in fact, can do things like killing someone without a second thought, no emotional connection whatsoever. Apparently there's a significantly large population, like 10% of the people in the world. I- I'm pulling that number out of the air, but read the yeah. book that's detailed. Uh, a much higher population than you might think, or a much higher percentage of population than you might think, is considered uh, a psychopath by the by the definition. What about the non psychopaths who are just cruel individuals? Who, you know, we all hear the stories of oh, kids are cruel, but sometimes those cruel kids don't grow out of that just kids are cruel thing. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you, they're psychopaths. You, no, but, I mean, <laughs> but they're not. I mean, there there's people out there who are are good people to a point but then they turn around and they trash talk another individual you gotta read the book because it's one of the things about about psychopaths is they're very very good at uh hiding it and basically acting like they're a regular person because they know that that's a great way to manipulate someone and get away with things and they have no moral qualms about it whereas you know you or i might feel bad about lying straight to someone's face uh, in in such a way to make them uh, you know make them believe something completely opposite of what reality is or completely wrong or something in not in their best interest but a psychopath has no issue whatsoever with doing that hmm. it's a interesting book I can probably find it on Amazon if you want the link <laughs> she'll add it to her list yeah, I'll, if yeah. I, right after Firefly I'll read it right after Firefly <laughs> <laughs> no, we're think- giving up on Firefly we're giving up okay I hand delivered Firefly to her, and she still hasn't watched it. It's gotten closer to the to the the video player, though. Is it? No. Yeah, it moved one shelf closer. So by twenty twenty, I should be. So hell may actually freeze over one of these days. Yes, and pigs will fly. I flew, (laughs) so there's that. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm probably getting this wrong because it's been a very long time. I want to say it was the philosophers Locke and Hobbes who had opposing views on whether people were uh, basically good or basically evil. Right. And uh, I think my take is it probably falls somewhere in between where there isn't really straight up good or straight up evil, um, just sort of are in those uh, shades of gray. And something that would be uh, very hard to justify from an external perspective probably becomes not condonable, but at least sort of like understandable when you understand what the the context is for uh, where somebody is coming coming from and how they're acting. All right, well, folks, well, Tommy and I have got an early start tomorrow, and uh, we're both fading away here. (laughs) Talk to you guys next time. Okay, thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.